You are listening to a message that was given at Living Word Chapel, Oracle, Arizona. It is our hope and prayer that God will use this message to speak to you and enrich your life. For more information, visit lwcoracle.org. Independence Day weekend. Yeah. I know I still smell like I have barbecue sauce in my hair. Which reminds me that several years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Boston on a business trip with two of my colleagues. And before the trip, we started talking about early American history and the Revolutionary War in particular. And so we planned into our trip that we had spent an extra day and we'd walk the Freedom Trail. How many are familiar with the Freedom Trail? Yeah, there's a couple. Well, if you're not familiar with the Freedom Trail, it's a two and a half mile path. It's marked out in red brick. Now, correct me if I get this wrong. It begins down in the Boston Common, which is the oldest, Ameri- oldest park in America, and it ends in Charlestown at the Bunker Hill Memorial. Along the way, as you travel, there are 16 historic sites that you've come across. And some of these are still in operation. Is our PowerPoint working? Oh, I hope so. Good. Like the old North Church. (laughs) It's kind of like vacation videos. (laughs) The old North Church is the church where the two lanterns were hung in the steeple to warn that the British would be moving their troops across the Charles River by boat into Cambridge as they advanced on Lexington and Concord. This church is still holding Episcopalian services today, yeah, Sunday, today. Independence Wharf is believed to be the site of the Boston Tea Party. Now, out in front of the old state house, in the busy intersection, oh, we can't really see the intersection, busy intersection of Devonshire and State Street, right in the median, there's a circle of red brick that marks the spot of the Boston Massacre where Crispus Atux, I don't know if I got his name right, but Crispus Atux and four others were shot and killed by the British soldiers as they threw snowballs and hurled insults at the British troops. Now, my co-workers told me before we left that I had to try the oysters. So along the way, we stopped at the Union Oyster House. This was established in 1826, and it's the oldest restaurant in America that has been in continuous service. I'm told that this was a favorite spot of Daniel Webster and that he ate there often. Now, I ate there and I discovered I'm allergic to oysters. (laughs) And it wasn't long before I was leaving my own trail along the Freedom Trail, you know, kind of marking my territory. (laughs) But this didn't stop us. As we continued on, I was able to see the home of Paul Revere, We saw the battle site of the Bunker Hill. And we saw Granary Burial Grounds. Now, this is the cemetery where many of the early patriots are buried. Men like Samuel Adams, Crispus Atex, John Hancock, and Paul Revere. It was a fascinating trip. And the lessons about the Revolutionary War jumped to life as I stood on the very same ground that our founding fathers did 230 years prior to that. Now, in 1776, the Second Continental Congress adopted our Declaration of Independence. 
declaring that we would no longer tolerate the tyranny imposed on us by the British monarch, King George III. And so we fought the Revolutionary War to gain that freedom. The second sentence of the Declaration of Independence, you can read it read along with me. It reads, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they've been endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, these words captured the American mind perfectly in 1776 because they acknowledged that life, liberty, and happiness originate with God. But today, many do not acknowledge God. And so the message or the meaning of this message is lost to a self-serving freedom that says, I have the liberty to live my life in a manner that makes me happy. But this was never the original intent. Thomas Jefferson wrote in his note on the state of Virginia in 1781, Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we, we have removed the only firm basis? A conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are a gift from God? And the answer to this rhetorical question is no. We must keep in mind that the liberties that we enjoy both in our nation and in our spirit are from God, our Father, the creator of the universe. So today, let us proclaim our declaration of dependence on God as we explore what it means to live a life surrendered to God that relies on Him for our life, our spiritual freedom, and our true joy. I've titled this message, Living a Life Dependent on God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share this message that you've placed in my heart. Lead me by your Holy Spirit, and I ask that you allow me to speak your words clearly so that my brothers and sisters who are listening would be edified. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's begin by examining what it means to live a life independent from God. This concept of independence is predominant in the human race. It goes all the way back to Adam. The Bible tells us that Eve was deceived by a serpent into eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Last week, Pastor James shared that Man was allowed to eat from any of these trees. He could eat as much of it as he wanted. But he wasn't allowed to eat of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve saw that the fruit was good for food. She saw that it was pleasing to her eye and that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took of it and ate of it and then offered it to Adam. Now the Bible tells us that Adam was not deceived, but that he willingly chose to disobey God. God had warned him that when you eat of it, you will surely die. So intellectually, Adam knew that he could eat of these trees, but it was wrong for him to eat of that tree. It was through an act of disobedience or living independent of God 
that he gained a personal knowledge of the evil of disobedience. He already knew good, but now he had the contrasting experience of the evil of disobedience and the guilt and the shame that come along with it. It's through Adam's decision to live independently from God that his relationship with God was severed and he became subject to the tyranny of sin. How many know that when God prohibits something, it's for our own good? And when we choose to disobey him, decide for ourselves what is right and what is beneficial and what is not beneficial for us, it always leads to disaster. I found that true to be in my life, my experience. Now, my four-year-old daughter, she's 13 now, but she was 14 then. (laughs) You're right, I'm wrong. When my daughter was four years old, better? When my daughter was four years old, she learned a new phrase. See if I can say it right. Et me toi. Now, this phrase still stops me in my tracks, and all the feelings and all the emotions of terror come rushing back when I hear it spoken. Et me toi. Because this phrase usually preceded a loud crash followed by an ear-piercing shriek that let us know that either a massive cleanup job or a trip to the urgent care was in order. Like the time when she determined that she was going to pour her milk onto her cereal from the gallon jug without any assistance. And me why. Oh, there's a picture of it. <laughs> or the time when she slid the chair all the way across the kitchen floor in front of the stove so she could stand on it and give whatever Ruth was cooking at the time a stir. It me why. Well, you get the point. We had many of those spontaneous teaching opportunities, or as some would call them, those magical moments in our home as the kids were growing up. Now, God has created each of us with a perfect plan and a purpose designed and tailored specifically for our lives. But we choose to live our life on our own, et me toi, without any regard to God's original intent and what he has planned for us. This independent living is defined as sin, and we all know too well what that looks like. So today we're going to look at three characteristics that are evident in the life of a person who lives his life dependent on God. These characteristics are humility, worship, and obedience. It's point number one. Dependence on God is reflected in humility. According to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, to be humble means that you're not proud or haughty. You're not arrogant and that you express a spirit of submission, ranking low in a hierarchy. Now, in the Bible, we find many examples of individuals like Adam who chose to live independently. But we also see examples of men like David who chose to place their confidence and their dependence on God. You can see glimpses of David's life scattered throughout several books of the Old Testament. 
First and Second Samuel, First Kings, First Chronicles. Paul, while speaking in a synagogue in Antioch, he said this about David. The people begged for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, who reigned for 40 years. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. I want us to take a look at a glimpse of David's life. It's about a 15-year period found in 1 Samuel. You see, God had rejected Saul from being king over Israel. And so he sent the prophet Samuel on an unpublicized mission to go to Bethlehem and look for a man named Jesse. Now, Jesse had eight sons, and the three oldest are mentioned by name, and they were serving in Saul's army. But on this particular morning, he, only, he chose to leave David in the fields watching his sheep, and he only presents seven of his sons to the prophet Samuel. And he lines them up from the oldest, from the oldest to the youngest. And he parades them in front of the prophet Samuel beginning with Eliab, the oldest. Now, when, Saul, when Samuel, boy, there's a lot of S's in this. When the prophet Samuel saw Eliab, the oldest, he's ready to anoint him, and he pulls the horn of oil, and he's getting ready, and God says, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. You see, God looks at things differently than we do. We tend to get all caught up on a person's social and economic status. We pay a whole lot of attention to a person's appearance, and we tend to judge people on that first impression. But God looks at a person's character, and he looks at the intent of a person's heart. Now, one by one, Jesse presents his sons to Samuel, and God hadn't chosen any of them. So he gets to the end, and Samuel says, are these all the sons that you have? And Jesse says, well, there's the youngest, but he's tending the sheep, as if to say, don't bother wasting your time with him. You see, Jesse hadn't even considered that David might possibly be the chosen one. He left him in the fields instead of bringing him along. He had a one in eight chance. That's better than any of us. So he left him in the field. Now, the Bible says that David was ruddy and that he had a fine appearance and handsome features. He was probably around 15 years of age at this point. One translation even says that he was glowing with health. Now, as I'm reading along, I'm like Paul. My mind does funny things when I read the Bible. And I'm seeing this, and it sounds to me like a couple of grandmothers trying to play matchmaker with their grandchildren. <laughs> Ethel, tell me about your grandson. Oh, Mildred, he's a ruddy boy, and he's just got this fine appearance, and you know he's just glowing with health. <laughs> now, I have never been introduced, and tell me, Pastor Bob, have you ever been introduced that way? No, I doubt if anybody has, but 
David is introduced to us in this story as a ruddy boy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And, and Samuel says, none of us are going to sit down. Send for him. Bring him here. We'll all stand until he arrives. And so David finally arrives, and Samuel must have thought to himself when he sees Samuel, he will another. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. He's a mama's boy. In fact, God has to tell him, stand up and anoint him. He's the one. God sees things differently than we do. And so... Samuel anoints David, and he returns home, and David returns to the chore of of watching his father's sheep. But his life is different because the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he was able to do great things. For instance, while he's watching his father's sheep, it says that a lion and a bear attacked the sheep, and David was able to kill them both with just his hands and a club. He became a skillful musician and a songwriter while spending those long hours, just him and the sheep and God, out in the fields of Israel or Bethlehem. In fact, 78 of the 150 psalms recorded in the Bible are attributed to being written by David. So we see that sometime later, Saul becomes tormented by an evil spirit. And one of Saul's attendants says, you know, I know this boy. He's a son of Jesse, and he's quite skillful on the harp. And so they bring him in, and he plays the harp for harp. I'm thinking a guitar. (laughs) He plays the harp for Saul, and the evil spirit departs, and Saul's returned to his sane mind. So David takes a part-time job working for Saul, playing the harp whenever he's tormented by an evil spirit. At the same time, he's still continuing to watch his dad's sheep. All this, even though he's been chosen by God and anointed as the next king by the prophet Samuel. That takes humility. Can you imagine being hired by an organization that you're going to be the CEO and they bring you in and put you in the mailroom part-time? So he takes the part-time job and he plays his harp and the evil spirit departs. And it's the next year, you know, he does this for a year, and finally the next year, the Philistine army and the Israelite army face off against each other. And the Philistines are on one hill, and the Israelite army is on the other hill, and right between them runs this valley that keeps them separated. For weeks, nothing happens. Each army is afraid to engage with the other, till finally a Philistine champion named Goliath steps out and begins to mock and taunt the Israelites. Now, the Bible says that he was nine foot nine inches tall. And for 40 days... Morning and evening, he would step out and cry out for somebody to fight him one-on-one in order to end the stalemate. Last month, my family and I went to the Phoenix Zoo. 
You're probably thinking, what does the zoo have to do with Goliath? (laughs) Well, we saw the giraffes there. And they were standing up on this little hill. If you could zoom out on that, that would be wonderful, but you probably can't, huh? Okay. They were standing out on this little hill. And I asked the a member, a staff member, how tall are the giraffes? I had read or Googled on Googled on Google. How tall giraffes get? And they get around 15 feet tall. So I asked the staff member, how tall are the giraffes at the Phoenix Zoo? And I was told that the tallest giraffe they have at the Phoenix Zoo is nine feet tall. So this gives us a perspective of just how enormous the giant Goliath must have appeared to the Israelites as they stood looking at a nine-foot man dressed in his armor with a shield bearer out in front of him taunting you. In fact, it says that the Israelites, when they saw him, they would run away in fear. Saul even has to offer a reward to the one that would kill Goliath. He says, I would give my daughter's hand in marriage. I would give great wealth. And I'll even exempt you from paying taxes, not only to you, but to your entire family. Well, one morning, the Israelites are lining up like they did every morning. The Philistines lining up. And they get the, we would call it the rebel yell. Ah! <laughs> I mean, it would run away from that. No, I don't think so. So they're out there lining up, and nine foot nine, Goliath steps out. Give me a champion to fight one-on-one. If he wins, we'll become your slaves. If I win, you'll become our slaves. Why do you even bother lining up? Because they take off running. About this time, David arrives with lunch for his brothers. And the Israelites are ducking behind caves. And he hears Goliath mocking the armies of the living God. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should mock the army of the living God? And he hears some of the soldiers talking about the one that would, of what Saul would give to the one that is able to kill Goliath. And so he inquires, what must I do to volunteer? And they're saying, you just did. (laughs) And so they bring him in before King Saul. And at first, Saul tries to dismiss him as just a naive boy. But David's confidence and his charisma soon wins Saul over. And Saul tells David that, Goliath has been a champion warrior since his youth. And he's been fighting since he was a boy. And here you are, at least go in my armor. And he tries to put his armor on Goliath, um, on his armor on David. Thank you, keep me straight now. Tries to put his armor on David, but it just doesn't fit. When I was at Christ for the Nations, we had a teacher that would lead an early morning prayer meeting. Now, his name was Dan Morocco. We called him Brother Morocco. He was a large man. He stood about six foot two, about there. He was well over 300 pounds. He had a booming baritone voice, and he was very much of the Pentecostal persuasion. Now, when he would pray, you could feel the ground shake underneath him. 
He would walk back and forth across the prayer room. His face would be bright red as he prayed. And he held in his hand a handkerchief so he could wipe the sweat from his brow as he prayed. Oh, glory. Thank you, God. We just want to thank you and praise you. And all of us guys tried to emulate him in our prayers, but it just didn't fit. It reminds me of a period of time in both of my kids' lives when they would put their little feet into my shoes and try to walk across the floor. This must have been what David looked like in Saul's armor. It just didn't fit. So David refused Saul's armor, choosing instead to face the giant in the proven manner that God had delivered him from the hand of the lion and from the hand of the bear. You see, to David, Goliath was just another opportunity for God to demonstrate his power and prove his faithfulness. And so after he kills Goliath, we read that the Philistine army is gripped by fear and they take off running for home with the Israelites chasing behind them. And a great victory is won that day. And King Saul promotes David to a full-time position in his army as a commander over his army. In fact, David is so successful that when the armies return after their conquest against the Philistines, the women begin to sing, Saul has killed his thousands and David has tens of thousands. And Saul is filled with jealousy. In fact, he tries to kill David twice with his spear. Now, David finally has to flee and run away for it. His life was in constant danger. And while he's running away, there are two opportunities when David has a chance to kill Saul. The first one is when Saul slips into a cave to use the facilities, and the other is when he's asleep in his camp, unguarded. But David refuses to harm Saul because he has reverence for the Lord's anointing. There, 15 years and about... 10 minutes. So the point of this whole story is that humility is not self-promoting. You see, David didn't use his popularity to elevate himself to his rightful position that he's already been anointed to as king. And he didn't use his force to try to take from Saul, taking advantage of Saul's vulnerability to bring himself into that position as king. He had already been chosen by God, anointed by the prophet Samuel, but he had to trust that God would fulfill his purpose in his life at his right time. And so he surrendered his will to God's will. Fifteen years passed from the time that he was anointed as king until the time that he was appointed as king. We also see that humility is having confidence properly placed. Saul had always depended on his own strength. We read that Saul was head and shoulders above every Israelite. He was a huge man, and he always depended on his own strength until he came upon a problem that was larger than he could handle. And then he became desperate, and he looked to others to bring a solution instead of going to the God of solutions. David, on the other hand, placed his confidence in God, the God that is larger than any giant we will ever face in our lives. 
Are you facing a situation in your life today? And on, in your own strength, your own ability, do you find like Saul that you're coming up short? Be like David and place your confidence in God. Trust in him and allow God to show you his faithfulness. Humility is not self-abasing. It's not having low self-esteem, but it's being confident in God and knowing that he is the one who will perform what he has promised. Point number two. Dependence on God is reflected in worship. Now, what comes to mind when you hear the word worship? Probably for many of us, we think about organized congregational music or prayer. Or we think about the form or a style or hymns or fast songs, slow songs. All these are a part of worship. But worship is both congregational as well as individual. A lot of people check out when I say the word worship because they think, well, I can't sing. Well, Singing, even though it expresses our heart and is a great part of worship, isn't necessarily worship. We can sing all day long and it not be worshipful. Worship is where individually we come before God and we surrender our heart to God and we say and we take the position that you are God alone. You alone are sovereign and you are in control of my life. And I worship you because you are worthy of being worshipped. It can be those quiet times when we just slip off and be alone with God like David did out in the fields where we just reflect on the Lord's goodness. And like the psalmist, we can say, Bless, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Rick Warren, in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, wrote this. Surrendering to God is the heart of worship. It is the natural response to God's amazing love and mercy. We give ourselves to God, not out of fear or duty, but in love because he first loved us. Trust is a necessary part of worship. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Now, we won't surrender to God unless we trust him. And we can't fully trust God unless we get to know him. Do we find ourselves trusting more in our own understanding than we do trust in God? Do we think that somehow... We know more than God? We need to put our confidence and trust in the Lord. Allow him to show himself faithful because he is trustworthy. Throughout scripture we find where men tried to place their confidence and their trust in riches, in armies, in the horses and chariots, in idols, and even in their own strength. But only God is trustworthy. And we can place our confidence in him. Psalm 108, verse 1 says, My heart is confident in you, O God. No wonder I can sing your praises with all of my heart. We must learn of God's unconditional love and commitment that he has towards us. 
In Jeremiah 29, we read, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You see, God has a specially designed plan, a purpose, tailored just for us. And we can rest in the assurance that God loves us without any conditions. He's on our side. He wants what is best for us. God wants to be your friend. In Romans chapter 5, it says, For since our friendship with God was restored through the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Now this word friend, it's not used for a casual acquaintance, but it's used for a, a close, trusted relationship. It's the same word that we would use to refer to a best man at a wedding. Now you wouldn't just go grab somebody off the street that maybe you see once a week and bring them in to be your best man in your wedding. No, we usually have a best friend or a brother or somebody very close to us that we bring into that position. It's the same word that in a king's court would use for a, an inner circle of trusted friends. Now, in a royal court, servants had to keep their distance from God or from the king. But an inner circle of friends was allowed close contact, direct access, and confidential information. And this is the position that God wants to have with us. He wants us to know him intimately and be his friend and to be his son and enjoy that closeness that we have with one another. Worship is not self-exalting. Psalm 115.1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name goes all the glory for your unfailing love and faithfulness. You see, you cannot exalt God and yourself at the same time. Exalting the Lord is recognizing that he alone is supreme and sovereign. He's worthy of worship. Worship of God puts all things in perspective in our lives and puts things in order. He is God, and all glory goes to him, not to us. Having a prayer life is a necessary part of worship. God deeply desires that we, we have this intimate relationship with him. And this only happens when you spend time alone with God. You can't get that intimacy if you're only spending time, say, hour and a half with God on Sunday morning. It requires daily slipping away, finding that time when you can be alone with God, where you can pour out your heart to God and honestly pour out your complaints, pour out your praise, pour out your rejoices. If you read through the Psalms, rejoices, that's a nice word. Throughout the Psalms, you'll see how David did that. He just came honestly, who he was, his heart bared open before God. And we can trust that God enjoys that company. He doesn't look down on you if you use the wrong word, if you don't have quite the King James version of your speech. He created you the way you are. He knows everything that you're going through. He's just waiting for you to come to him and say, God, I surrender to you. I place it in your hands.
It involves meditating on his word, listening to his voice. Worship's more than just praising, singing, and praying to God. It's a lifestyle. It's those times of enjoying God and loving him and giving ourselves to him for, to be used for his purposes. Which brings us to point number three. Dependence on God is reflected in obedience. Now, obedience is not self-serving. Each of us has been given abilities, talents, skills by God. 1 Peter 4.10 says, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them to serve one another. You see, God didn't give us our abilities, our talents, to be used for selfish, selfish purposes. He gave them to benefit others, just the way that he gave others abilities, talents, skills for your benefit. They're to be used for one another's benefit. And this requires that we obey the leading of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians when he's saying to use your gifts to edify and build up the body. Surrender is best demonstrated in obedience. You know, we can't call Jesus Lord when we refuse to obey him. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. We can't pick and choose what we're going to obey and disobey. Surrendered people obey God's word even when it doesn't make sense. Now we're told in scripture to love our enemies, to do good to those that persecute us, to forgive those that trespass against us. This doesn't make any sense to our own understanding. That's why we need to not lean on our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge God. Let him direct our paths. Depend on God, surrender to God, and allow him to work things out instead of trying to do it on our own and manipulate people and try to force our own agenda. Surrendered people obey God's word even when it doesn't make sense. Finally, the supreme example of a life of obedience, a life dependent on God is found in Jesus. After Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. He had fasted 40 days, and it says at the end of this, he was hungry, and the devil tempted him. I want us to notice that the devil tempted him in three areas. They were humility, worship, and obedience. But Jesus laid aside his own desires, his own needs. He was hungry. He could have turned the stones into bread, but it would have been not depending on God for his, to sustain his life and to depend on him for every word, but it would have been taking and fulfilling that in his own strength, in his own ability. We need to be like Jesus. Jesus was praying in the garden the night before his crucifixion. And he cried out, Father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. 
Yet I want your will to be done and not mine. See, Jesus came not only as an example to us, but as a man, he came as an example of us. A life that is totally dependent on God, that surrenders his will to God's will. His total dependence on God and the passion to do the Father's will led him to the cross. Philippians 2 in chapter 6 through 8 says, Our attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in the human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now I want us to ask ourselves a few questions. Do we see the characteristics of humility, worship, and obedience evident in our lives? Is there something that we're holding on to that we haven't quite surrendered to God? Are we leaning on our own understanding and trusting in our own strength, our own abilities, instead of surrendering that to God and allowing Him to fulfill that purpose in His time, in His way? You see, we come at the word surrender and we think of it as a negative thing. We tend to equate surrender to winning and losing. And somehow if we surrender, we're admitting defeat. But to God, surrender is the most positive thing that we can do. It's a willingness to lay down our life, our needs, our desires, and say, Lord, I surrender to your will, your needs. It's allowing his desire to become our desire. We often quote the scripture, God will give you the desires of your heart with the idea in mind that God's going to give me whatever I desire. But scripture can better be interpreted that God will cause our desires to match his desires. You see, dependence on God isn't becoming passive, but it's the most active thing that we can do, that we willingly lay down our lives, our needs, our wants, and trust in God. God has designed a plan, a purpose for our lives that is uniquely tailored for each life here. Are we going through life with a et me twi, let me try perspective? Are we trying to manipulate and force things to happen? Or are we stepping back from that and saying, God, you are in control of my life. I yield to you. Fulfill your purpose in me. God has a plan for you, a plan that is good, not for disaster. He wants to give you a future and a hope. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that these words spoken today would find fertile soil. Heavenly Father, we choose to depend upon you and not lean on our own understanding. In all of our ways, O oh God, we acknowledge you 
and we trust that you will direct our paths. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and for watching over us. And Lord, I pray that you will reveal your desired plan and purpose for those that seek you. Father, if we're going through life thinking that we're just going through the motions, not directed in any way, Father, we, we repent of that. We now put our eyes on you knowing that you are in control of our life and that you want to direct our steps and order them by your Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you and I praise you because you are God and you reveal yourself in a mighty way. You demonstrate your power and your faithfulness to us every day if we would just look. It's in the name of your Son, in the wonderful name of Jesus that I pray, amen. This has been a message from Living Word Chapel. We hope that you've been blessed by it. 